Welcome to the Crockcast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Crock Institute for International Peace Studies. In our second episode, Crock Institute Director of Catholic Peacebuilding Studies, Jerry Powers, sits down to talk with Professor Emeritus George Lopez and Dr. James Moeller, co-founder of the Nobel Peace Prize winning organization, International Physicians for Prevention of Nuclear War. They talk about the history, present, and future of the movement towards nuclear disarmament. Hello, my name is Jerry Powers. I'm director of Catholic Peacebuilding Studies at the Crock Institute for International Peace Studies. 74 years ago this week, the United States destroyed Hiroshima and Nagasaki with atomic bombs. Fortunately, nuclear weapons have not been used in war since then. But many argue that the threat of nuclear use is as great today as at any time during the height of the Cold War. The Kroc Institute was founded in the mid-1980s by Father Ted Hesburgh with the support of Joan Kroc, who had seen him speak on the U.S. Catholic Bishop's pastoral letter on nuclear weapons. The Institute was founded to address the Cold War standoff and the nuclear threat which many considered the most pressing issue of the day. And nuclear weapons has remained a priority for the Kroc Institute ever since. We are very fortunate to have with us to talk about this issue, both as it was back then in the early 1980s when the Kroc Institute was founded, and as it is today. And we have two specialists. Dr. James Muller is a cardiologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital and co-founder of International Physicians for the Prevention of Nuclear War which won the 1985 Nobel Peace Prize. He was also one of the Kroc Institute's original advisory board members. Professor George Lopez is the Reverend Theodore M. Hesburgh, Professor Emeritus of Peace Studies, and one is one of the founding faculty members of the Kroc Institute and remains at the Kroc Institute in various capacities. Why don't we begin, we begin with you, Jim? You're a medical doctor. How'd you come to be involved in the nuclear issue? And what role did doctors like yourself play? So my involvement is a, a circuitous path. When I was living in Indianapolis and planning to go to Notre Dame, uh, my father said, what language do you plan to study there at college? And I said, German, I like science. And he said, well, look at that Sputnik satellite going across the sky. Why don't you study Russian? They must know something. And it would be a valuable language. So I came to Notre Dame and uh, this was in the 60s, I started studying Russian. So I thought this would be a good way to get to medical school. So I took Russian for four years at Notre Dame, got straight A's in Russian. I had no interest in the nuclear arms race. That was not my thought. I went to medical school at Johns Hopkins and I heard a doctor talk about his trip to Moscow. This is during the Cold War, when these two nations are threatening to nuke each other. And I went up to him after his talk, and I said, you know, I studied Russian at Notre Dame. Maybe I could go to Moscow. He said, I'll find you a program. So he found a program for Dostoevsky scholars and Tolstoy scholars. And I was the only medical student on the program to Moscow. That's what I did. I went to Moscow partly as a kind of an adventure for a medical student, six months, and partly as a mission to try to build better medical contacts between these warring parties. I didn't speak any English for six months, and I saw Russian nuclear weapons come through Red Square that I knew were aimed at the United States. I wish we could see them today. Then the threat would be 
recognized. People don't realize that we're living under this threat where one drunken person in a missile silo somewhere can set things off and we are in great danger from the current arms race. It was more visible then. You know, we were hiding under our desk. Uh, we had these, uh, the Cuban Missile Crisis. We had a lot of signs of the danger. Now the danger is hidden. So what happened is I lived in Moscow, came back to med school. I then pursued a cardiology career. I, I went to the Harvard Med School. I trained there. And in 1978, so this is jumping a decade later, we were talking about the MX missile and how Russia and the U.S. would fight. And George, you remember this. Someone's going to win a limited nuclear war. And I thought, that is complete nonsense. And I went to Bernard Lown and I said, Dr. Lown, why don't we try and get the Russian doctors to work with us against nuclear weapons? And he said he had the same idea. He wrote Chazov, who was Brezhnev's doctor. And Bernard Lon was the uh, Harvard was professor. Harvard professor. I was the junior faculty. He had the power and the international connections. I had the Russian language from Notre Dame, so the two of us clicked in that regard. But Chazov went to Brezhnev and said, Comrade Brezhnev, the head of the Soviet Union, these American doctors want to work with, want me to work with them against nuclear weapons. And fortunately, Brezhnev had an, a Medtronic pacemaker. So he had a nice feeling towards American doctors. He said, uh, yes, you can work with them. Because at the time, the Soviet nuclear policy on paper was quite good. You know, it was no first use, it's we want global nuclear disarmament, which that gave operating room for the Russian doctors to say good things. So that's how the movement got started. Uh, we went to Geneva in 1980, and there were three Russians, three Americans. We basically had to agree that we wouldn't fight with each other about communist behavior in Afghanistan or American suppression of African Americans, that we would stay on one issue, on the nuclear issue, and that, that we fought about that. And we finally realized that we're just going to recreate the Cold War unless we say we are doctors, we're working for survival of our patients and of humanity, and that we won't get involved in other issues. Now that led to problems down the line, but that was the founding principle of the world doctors movement. So you, you mentioned the decision to focus just on nuclear weapons. It wasn't an uncontroversial decision when the international physicians for the prevention of nuclear war received the Nobel Prize, is that right? And, and what were some of the what were some of the challenges that you ran into? So when we were awarded the Nobel Prize, and so this is six years after we started, it was not fun. There was a press conference and we were being attacked. The attack on us said, you are communists, you're American doctors that have influence, the Russian doctors don't, you're gonna weaken the US, and you're not helping the Jewish dissidents within Russia. The, the press conferences were, we could describe the press at that time the way Trump describes the press now. So it was not easy, it was coming at us all the time. We kept saying, we're just doctors trying to save lives. And then a Russian journalist fell to the floor 
in front of us and turned purple. This was at the Nobel ceremony. Yes, this was at the press conference for the Nobel ceremony. So I was a young cardiologist and had been working in the coronary care unit, so it was kind of my job to lead the cardiac arrest. I gave the journalist, uh, at that time you gave mouth-to-mouth breathing, I did that. And of course, this is going on with about 10 world television cameras on this cardiac arrest. And one thing that happened is that the uh, American doctors were very aggressive. A lot of us knew each other. There were a lot of us there. It was all Americans doing this. And what we got him intubated, and we were pounding on the chest. We're waiting for the ambulance. So it, it kind of stabilized. And at that point, one of the Russians started pounding on the chest, and the American is doing the breathing. So I realized this was the metaphor that we needed that we're doctors trying to save life. And then the cameras went off, and that was the International Herald Tribune picture. Russian-American doctors worked together to save a life. We did save his life. I rode with him to the hospital after he'd been shocked. It got his rhythm back. He had a good femoral pulse. And uh, I met him a year later. He was fine. He had a cardiac arrest in the right place. But then some of our critics thought the Russians had faked it. That was what was going on. So we had had those kinds of moments. Now, you sometimes make an, uh, use cardiology as a metaphor for the nuclear threat and the nuclear risks. Can you explain that a bit? Yes. Um, there are a lot of cardiologists that have worked against nuclear weapons. And I finally realized that cardiologists are trained to prevent low-frequency, high-consequence negative events. That's nuclear war. It's low-frequency, it's horrible, and uh, it could happen. Our training is to look at risk. You know, what's a 10-year risk for this patient with a certain cholesterol uh, that they'll have a heart attack, and then based on that risk, how can we minimize it? So I I think that's why doctors do that. Uh, But the other side of the coin, another feature of medical cooperation is that the physicians are dedicated to helping preserve life. And that dedication is a, can be quite different than their devotion to some national policy, so that they unite rather easily around, we'd like to protect people against death. And we don't have any trouble once we start talking to each other. So the international physicians had all these connections with United States, Soviet Union, you have Japanese and other countries, right? But what about today? Do you have the same kind of international connections among physicians concerned about nuclear war? So there's been an interesting evolution of the international physicians for prevention of nuclear war. At the beginning, it was Russian-American-centric. As you know, there were 63,000 nuclear weapons then. Now there are 15,000. So that was, it was a Russia-U.S. kind of thing. What's happened now is that much of the energy of the international physicians is more multipolar. The Australian group started ICANN, and ICANN is, of course, the effort to abolish all these nuclear weapons. It was the Australian group of IPPNW that helped start ICANN. So I I view that as a grandchild of what we did because uh, when I've been at ICANN headquarters, they said, yes, IPPNW got ICANN started. And ICANN's organization that won the Nobel Peace Prize in 2017 for its work on the UN Nuclear Ban Treaty. Yes. 
And that, the work, you know, it's, it's almost as if IPPNW, we did the diagnosis and ICANN is the treatment. Okay. It's my medical way of looking at it. One of the great things is that much of the energy there is coming from young people. And that's what's the young people who will have to solve this problem for their generation. Let me bring in uh, Professor George Lopez. Uh, now, you were here at the founding of the Kroc Institute in the mid-1980s and at a time when the nuclear issue really was considered the most important issue of many people considered that way. What's your sense of the, the threat of nuclear use and nuclear war at the height of the Cold War in the 1980s and previously versus the threat today? How would you, how would you consider the, assess the threat? I think the threat is different, but no less serious and no less potentially devastating. We were in the 1980s, as for almost two decades earlier from that, convinced that an exchange between the United States and the Soviet Union would bring an end to much of civilization as the world knew it, because Europe would be engulfed. Many other countries might well be engulfed uh, in the aftermath of nuclear winter. The publications and the profound global dialogue, not only among physicians, but among many in the international community in the 1980s, solidified the message that even though the strategic planners and some military and political people were talking about tactical nuclear war or theater nuclear war, or if you dug a hole and pull a blanket over your head, you could survive nuclear war, all of those follies were quickly dismissed and you came up against a reality that on the one hand led to a significant citizens development for nuclear zero, nuclear weapons being at least stopped at one level. The problematic, I think, was it wasn't that nuclear weapons were defeated as a viable means for preserving security for either nations or one system, but that one of the systems collapsed. And while it's to the credit of the leaderships in each side in the early 1990s that there was a dramatic reduction, neither those deeply committed to reduction being the start of a longer process of going to zero and the security doctrines of the time didn't allow for a thinking of going to such minimal levels that we would render these things soon obsolete. And the inability to get to that point led inevitably to an understanding that despite certain commitments by all states that held weapons to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Agreement or in the light of major strong states, which were still Russia and the United States, asserting their power either in real military ways or in the symbolic ways on the Security Council, led the Indias and Pakistans and the Iraqs and Irans and the Libyas and the North Koreans to think about, it's not just the security dynamic that a nuclear weapon might provide, but it is one of the paths to full global prestige. Who are those who hold nuclear weapons? The five permanent members of the Security Council. Who are those to whom no challenge can arise that they can't crush? 
by economic sanctions or political will, the states that acquire nuclear weapons. That proliferation, that security vacuum created by the inability to invent a system that didn't need nuclear weapons to keep national or regional security, and quite frankly, the progress in technology and in Dwight Eisenhower's words, the military industrial complex that benefits in a number of countries and I'd say in the international illicit trade arena from the continued development of weapons has left us with a situation that is different in its likelihood of the massive exchange of weapons, but increasingly likely that they could be used in devastating ways in certain theaters. Our likelihood has probably remained the same of nuclear war happening. Its character may be different, and we know in a world of post 9-11 in the United States, we have still a reasonable degree of being concerned about non-state actors acquiring these weapons and their potential to use them because they didn't ascribe to either the moral or political calculations that in an odd and illogical way continued to help the Russians and the Americans at their worst still to decide not to use these. Some people would argue that, let's look on the bright side. At the height of the Cold War in the 1980s, the anti-nuclear movement was searching for a mere freeze. Instead, what we got was an 80% reduction in U.S. and Russian nuclear stockpiles, far better than anybody could have imagined in the 1980s. So the real problem is nuclear proliferation, Iran, North Korea, as you said, India, Pakistan, regional conflicts, or terrorism. It's not the U.S. and Russian arsenals. How do you respond to that? Or how would you respond, Joe? I think this is a, a non-medical citizen trying to draw the same kind of good analogies that Jim does. So we're not going to die of the heart attack, we'll die of the stroke instead. <laughs> I mean, that's my analogy to this. There will be no devastating exchange with all American cities and Russian cities knocked out, but there'll be such a significant exchange between some clusters of folks that the prospect of nuclear winter and related damages will still occur for large portions of the planet. I, I think, therefore, it brings us to examine what are the factors that led to the acceptance of reduction as an adequate response to what was going to be the changing character of the role of nuclear weapons militarily and politically. The moment we're in right now I find especially dangerous not because the stockpiles are so much growing, although I think they will under the current climate of the treaties being abrogated and technologies calling for more sophistication. Uh, the dilemma with the current climate, as Jim referred to, is there's not a global consciousness of how serious this is. We've lost in the last three or four years on the American side the belief that the best way to control weapons was to make sure that we mutually constrained our ability to make new progress on building them. In the loss of the INF Treaty, in the abrogation of things like the Iran Agreement, at least from the American perspective, I see a decision. It doesn't matter whether or not the other side builds, it's that we'll build better and more and we'll have a more aggressive approach if we need to in the use of these, as opposed to a philosophy that suggests in exchange for my foe giving up, of course, I must make a corresponding 
reduction. Jim, what, what's your sense of this? What's the current situation, and particularly U.S. policy? The Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists has us as close to midnight as we've ever been, and uh, I agree with them. And the, the cause is not only Russia-U.S. conflict, which is there, but you have China and the U.S. in hostile relations. And you have the spread to multiple nations that George talked about. You've got the computer errors that could launch these things. You've got human error. There are lots of personnel around nuclear weapons who have psychological problems, drug addiction, alcoholism. We've created a giant trap for humanity, and it can be triggered rather easily. So what what worries me as a scientist is cumulative probability. It's a 1% chance of a nuclear war spread over 10 years is not so bad. But what about the life of our children or their children? How many hundreds of years can you maintain a world with nuclear weapons on hair trigger alert, controlled by computers and fallible people without an accident? You know, it's, this is the my argument against deterrence as it's being practiced is that it has to work perfectly forever. And that's unlikely. You know, I think what you're building at Croc, a better understanding of international security, not based on the threat of annihilating millions of innocent people, that's a much better way to go. That percentage dynamic that uh, you cite, Jim, is, is so important because we're not far from the era where then Vice President Cheney said in response to a question how far will the U.S. go in trying to ferret out terrorism and maybe even violating the human rights of others in finding out whether they're terrorists or not? And Cheney, without missing a beat, said, we can't tolerate even a 1% likelihood that terrorism would strike the United States again. Well, we're certainly in the 1% or greater threshold of nuclear threat or war, and there's no corresponding assessment either in the military or the media asking the question of policy people and no general awareness that that's the peril that we're casting for ourselves. You know, the nuclear threat is, it's a little like alcoholism. I mean, before an alcoholic can get better, they have to hit bottom sometimes. And uh, we may need another Cuban Missile Crisis where people are sitting there for a week wondering if they're going to be blown off the planet in order for the issue to get the attention it deserves. That's kind of a grim statement. That's almost where we are because the the change required with nuclear weapons is so enormous. That's going to take a lot of people recognizing the threat. That's what we did have that in the 80s, you know, the massive million-person march in New York People felt that great danger was perceptible. Right now, the most common word people use about nuclear disaster is that it's unimaginable. And you can't prevent something that you cannot imagine. So it almost has to get worse before it's going to get better. So let's move from diagnosis to prescription. It seems to me the world is very schizophrenic at the moment. On the one hand, you had this landmark 2017 UN treaty that 122 countries signed uh, that would prohibit nuclear weapons. It's not a disarmament treaty, but a prohibition treaty, basically intended to develop a norm against nuclear weapons. But on the other hand, we have seen that the, the U.S. withdrew from the 
Iran nuclear accord, U.S. and Russia have now withdrawn from the INF, the Intermediate Nuclear Forces Treaty, which was one of the most successful Cold War-era treaties that eliminated a whole class of weapons in Europe. We've got some negotiations with North Korea, but they seem stalled. And we've got the biggest nuclear buildup on all sides that we have, have had since the beginning of the 1980s. So we seem to be moving in diametrically opposed <laughs> directions. What's your assessment of the, the prescription, the treatment? How do we move forward in terms of policy? I think we need to look at those other areas, which are few but still exist, of global action, global consciousness, global data-based analysis that have uh, moved people before. We've had uh, a movement of norms to change the character of human rights, particularly in the wake of the Holocaust. And while that's been differential in different regions of the world, the global existing norms for treatment of human rights is, uh, is, is different from what it was 75 years ago. We've had environmental standards, even with this debate about climate change, dramatically change what's happened in a combination of science, medicine, practice, etc. The human life expectancy is, is twice now what it was 100 years ago, mostly because of changes in the uh, quality of drinking water. So norms, goals, citizen consciousness, scientific achievement can combine to solve problems that are a, a great threat to not only our life, but the quality of our life. And how we bring that to bear to the nuclear question is what the ICANN movement really sets before us in new ways. There are ways in which a whole new generation of people need to be both re-educated about the prospect of this being under human control and those who've been around for a while to understand we've been living on borrowed time with the myth about a security system that can be based on nuclear weapons. I think what, what we really need is what Father Hesburgh wanted when he thought of founding the Kroc Institute, which is education. You know, human beings are very talented. They can invent things like nuclear weapons, but they can also think through the consequences and uh, in advance of a disaster, take the steps needed to prevent it. So I, I view the work of the Kroc Institute in putting out the publications you do and bringing fellows here and bringing students here, contributing what George talked about, the global consciousness change that is required by nuclear weapons. That's the most urgent thing. Yeah, the international physicians played a key role in democratizing the nuclear debate in the 1980s. But unfortunately, since the end of the Cold War, because many people have felt that we've solved the problem, it's become much more of an elite debate. And so I think the challenge is to re-democratize the debate the way you and others did in the, in the 1980s. Well, there's the argument, I'm sure you've heard it, that war is too important to be left to the generals. Nuclear weapons are too important to be left to nuclear chess players. One other aspect of education that I think is a real challenge for us. Jim said before it's difficult to come to the analysis of doing away without weapons without having a vision for that. We are very good in education for teaching what is and occasionally what can be, but we need to be better at helping students and others create a world that no one has seen yet and to put contours on that that are viable whereby we can say, having envisioned a world 30 years from now, 
where security and prosperity is guaranteed without nuclear weapons, we can write the history of that in reverse in a way to help it come about. It's a whole different pedagogy. Your first classes of students had U.S. and Russian and Chinese students, and now we still we continue to get students from those countries, but also from many other countries. And then, of course, our, we have many American students. Do you, do you see a difference in how you, how you bring this into your teaching now as opposed to then? Because uh, now this is not a top issue for most students, we found. And part of that is because the challenges to peace and the dynamic of violence is so clear and virile for them in the experiences from which they come, whether it's the Congo or in the earlier times in Latin America and the Balkans, people are going to try to make peace where they find the violence. And so it's less that the students may be less focused, it's that we have to be more focused on the relationship between the resource exploitation, the economic inequities that have led to the violence that they see in their home countries, and how even solving that still leaves you with a giant mushroom cloud possibility over your head. You may solve the civil war in your country, but it's still going to be buffeted about by climate change. We know that, whether that's Congo or Colorado. And we have to understand how to bring nuclear dynamics back into that in new and viable ways that the marvelous change agents we can educate can expand their change focus to include the nuclear dilemma. So I have a positive thought here. It's kind of a grim topic. What I find so impressive is the high school students and their work against gun violence and weapons of mass destruction. You know, we're days after the the slaughters here in El Paso and in Dayton. The young people are led the way at Parkland on something that older people had given up on. So maybe, and you know, it's marvelous what's the movement that seems to be occurring now on, they're called weapons of mass destruction, guns, which kill hundreds of people in minutes. Nuclear weapon is going to kill hundreds of thousands of people in seconds. There may be that the generation that is so sensitive to the school violence and gun violence might be the generation that brings us a better vision of how to deal with nuclear weapons, the ultimate weapons of mass destruction. How have you found, you work with medical students and young doctors uh, on trying to get them interested the way you became interested when you were a, a medical student, a young doctor. How's that going? It's going pretty well because not everybody has to do this. You know, not everyone has to be a firefighter. There are a number of medical students at the Harvard Medical School who are quite active on this topic. And they've worked on Back from the Brink and they've lobbied the State House. And I, I found it very encouraging that young people, I hope they view these weapons as an inheritance of the 20th century that they don't want. And that could change things pretty quickly. I think we saw the beginning of it, the linkage that Jim has talked about, when the American Medical Association went on record as saying that domestic violence was a number one health problem. And we had to look at local violence as a public health problem. The next step is to look at nuclear weapons as a substantial public health threat. 
Let me turn to a, a slightly different topic. You mentioned the, the role of norms, George, and Notre Dame's mission is distinctively Catholic and focused on religion and ethics, and we, it's one area where the Kroc Institute specializes. How do you see the role of religion and ethics? What role it played in the, in the past and what role it currently play? Well, let me try the past. In the 80s, we were being called communists, the doctors against nuclear weapons. And I went to my parish priest in Wellesley and I said, we would like to get a letter from the Pope to say that we're not communists just because we're against nuclear weapons. And he said, well, I can help you with that. I'll get you an appointment with the Cardinal. So I went to see Cardinal Maderos and I, he said, what do you need here? And I said, I need a letter from the Pope. And he said, what should it say? And I said, well, I, I should say something about nuclear weapons or against Catholic doctrine. He said, I have Pachaman Terrace here. I'm going to open this page for you. Why don't you go through and see what parts you like and what you want in the letter from the Pope? So I did that. Uh, he took the letter to the Pope, and the Pope signed it. And then we went to Early House for our first meeting, and we were in front of the Washington Press Corps. And the question came, you guys are communists. You know, you're, you're helping Russia. And... Dr. Lown, who's the president of the group, he said, oh no, Jim, read the letter from the Pope. So we got up and read this letter congratulating us on what we were doing. So it was Catholic moral theology that was so important. And of course, we worked with Father Brian Hare, who taught us a lot about the nuclear issue and what could be said and how we could say it. And I think Catholic, and you know more about this than I do, but how in the world can a religion justify dropping a bomb on innocent children? Uh, intentional murder of non-combatants, which is what was done at Hiroshima, and you know we're a day away from the anniversary of Nagasaki. What are the ethics involved in that? Either first use or even second use of nuclear weapons. How is that justified? One thing that the Kroc Institute did recently is in November 2017, the Vatican had a major conference, 11 Nobel Peace Prize winners attended uh, on nuclear disarmament, and the Pope uh, gave a major address in which he said that not only the use, but even the possession of nuclear weapons was morally problematic. Uh, and the Kroc Institute played a major role in supporting that that conference and, and participating in the conference, and we uh, were able to bring Working with Georgetown and the U.S. bishops and Catholic University of America, we were able to bring about 25 professors and students to participate. Students normally don't participate in those conferences. So it was a wonderful opportunity for us to be part of that, and it's one of many things that the Holy See has been doing on this question. But the problem that we uh, see is that the, the Catholic community, like other faith communities, was deeply involved in this issue in the 1980s and played a leading role in many ways, especially in holding up that vision that you were talking about, George. But then at the end of the Cold War, uh, the scholars quit writing, quit writing about the topic. The ethics of nuclear weapons basically fell by the wayside. We lost the whole generation of bishops who died or retired or had spent a lot of time on this question. And the younger generation became interested in other issues. So we've, we've initiated a a new project working with Georgetown's Berkeley Center and the U.S. Catholic bishops and Boston College and the Nuclear Threat Initiative to revitalize the Catholic engagement in this question. So we're working with 
we had a week-long institute for students in Washington uh, this past May. We'll, can, we'll do that again next May. We had a series of high-level conferences with top policymakers and, and top church leaders on the question. Uh, and we've also sponsored a number of book projects and uh, research projects on the ethics of nuclear, nuclear disarmament. We see that as a major gap that we're trying to fill within the Catholic community. And the, the public silence makes your work even more important. You know, if everybody was talking about this and supported politicians who wanted to do the right things, that's one situation. That's not what's going on. There's complete denial. There's, there's very little discussion of this by the Democratic presidential candidates. Elizabeth Warren has no first use policy, but it's not even in the debate. You know, what, why is it that, we, that Trump can launch hundreds of nuclear weapons within 15 minutes without cons- asking permission of anyone? Is that the right way for the world to be wired? I think it's also the case that people worry about peace in terms of the violence that they see before them. And again, the absence of this as a threat, the denial that Jim has eloquently spoken about, is something that our discussion of ethics and norms has to overcome in new creative ways. And I'm not sure we're yet fully up to that task, but uh, but I hope we can get there. Why don't we end on a, on a uh, more hopeful note? What, what gives you hope? I said it earlier, I'll repeat it. What gives me hope are the uh, younger generation and their ability to change things. Look at the attitudes towards gender uh, and same-sex marriage changed dramatically, quickly. The, the attitude towards the environment among younger people is marvelous. The attitude against handguns and uh, AK-15s, it's that generation, it, they're going to take charge eventually, and they may not want to build a world where security is linked to these horrible weapons which are computer-controlled and can blow us all up. I think they may say this is not going to work. Now, I'm inclined to agree 100% and as someone who has the privilege still of working with some of these young people in the classroom. There is not just an optimism for them, but there is, in their own experience, the ability to be change agents in ways that uh, can and should be motivated by ethics, but also can be motivated by the kinds of experiences where they've seen change. And uh, I I think we could be in for an exciting time if enough of us in the policy community, in the church community, and in the teaching community, you know, the folks with all the robes, do their job and string the history of the last 40 years with the opportunities and talents and drive of, of this generation. We may have a future a decade from now we didn't envision yet. I'd like to add a hope for the Kroc Institute. Um, I, I, what occurred to me looking at this arms race over 70 years is that it's not going to go away. The knowledge of how to build nuclear weapons is on the web. It's permanent. It's much easier with 3D printing. You know, I've founded a medical device company. You can build things much easier than you could. So building these things is going to be possible for even small nations like North Korea. So the problem is permanent of knowledge. Human aggression, conflict is permanent. So every future generation, this is not a problem that will go away. It's a problem that will always have to be managed. 
So education on how to manage the nuclear threat going forward, not just uh, 10 years, but centuries, that's what needs to be done. What gives me hope is if that in, in 1989, when I was still a young policy wonk in Washington working for the Catholic bishops, if I gave a talk saying that the Cold War would be over within a little more than a year, I probably would have been fired. And the Cold War was over within less than a year without, or two years. Without war. Without, without the Third World War. Yeah. That's what gives me hope. And, and same with the, the fact that we've mentioned that the U.S. and Russia reduced their nuclear arsenal by some 80 percent since the 1980s. And if you would have predicted that at the time that you won the Nobel Peace Prize, people would have said you were hopelessly naive and utopian in your thinking. So those two things give me hope. We have uh, come to the end of our time. Thank you very much, George Lopez and Jim Muller, for joining us. And this is Jerry Powers. Um, And thank you all for listening, for joining us for this uh, CropCast. But Jerry, do you really want to say that we've come to the end of our time? been listening to the Crockcast, Peace Studies Conversations convened by the University of Notre Dame's Crock Institute for International Peace Studies. You can find all episodes of the Crockcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, and online at crock.indy.edu slash podcast. You can also rate and review our podcast, which will help more people to find our show. For more updates and stories from the Croc Institute, follow us online on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thanks for listening. <laughs>